We continue through the book of Luke, Luke chapter 3. We come to the actual start of the ministry of Jesus. This is the beginning of his public ministry. He has lived more or less in obscurity. We don't really know a whole lot about the childhood of Jesus. We have just a couple of his incidences as his actual birth. But that one little episode where he stays in Jerusalem... And his parents kind of wonder where he is. But other than that, Jesus just seems to live a, as it were, normal life. John, the Baptist, also stays out in the wilderness. He, too, stays, as it were, hidden. Um, And then they burst out onto the scene. John arrives. He begins to preach this message to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king is at hand. And everyone is waiting for the king. And they all say to John... Is it you? Are you the Christ? He's like, no, not me. There is one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, which is the lowliest of the low job. I'm not even worthy to do that. Now, if you believe that the Messiah is coming, if you believe that we as a nation should be prepared for the coming of the Messiah, come on down, identify with that message, get baptized here in the Jordan River, Be a disciple of John and admit that you are a sinner, the nation is a sinner, filled with sinners, and that we need to be prepared. Which, by the way, is exactly why the leaders wouldn't come down. They weren't going to admit either that they were sinners or that the nation needed to repent because, well, they're in charge of the nation. If they go down and admit that the nation needs to repent, that somehow we're not ready for our Messiah, well, it'd be self-condemning, so they're not going to do that. So they're just going to stand back and they don't repent. In the midst of all this, a guy shows up who does not in any way, prior to this, stand out. That's this guy named Jesus. And he arrives at the baptism of John. John's been at this for a little while. And Luke, who doesn't go into great detail about it, he just kind of says it. Verse 21, now, when all the people were baptized, that is, at the same time, everyone else was getting baptized, Jesus also was baptized. Luke is trying to make the point here that there's not a special baptism for Jesus. It's not like, in the midst of all of this, John stands up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've got everybody out of the water here. We've got a special event going on now. Uh, No, no, Jesus comes down with everyone else and... I would assume there's a line, and gets in line, and when it comes time, he walks up to John. Now, there is a little discussion. Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew will record it. John knows that Jesus is who Jesus is. And he's looking at Jesus, he's like, you know, between the two of us here, if anybody's going to be baptizing anybody, you want to be baptizing me. That's what he actually says, Luke, read it in Matthew 3. And Jesus says to him, no, just allow it at this moment so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. We need to do this. This is, this is the prophecy. This is the plan. This is how this is going to go. Jesus is going to completely identify with the message of John. That, by the way, is what baptism is. Baptism is you declaring to all the world that you identify with the message to which you're being baptized, which is why 
baptism can, as it were, be a, it's a ceremony that lots of people can do. You can be baptized into all kinds of organizations if they wish to use that form to make you a member or to somehow cause you, you, baptism is to make a statement. This message that is being declared, whatever that message might be, I fully identify with it. Now, we preach the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, who has died on our behalf, has been buried and resurrected. And if we baptize you, we're going to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to teach you to observe all things whatsoever Jesus commanded us. That's what Jesus commands us to do. That, by the way, is not the baptism of John. That's not the baptism Jesus was baptized with. We don't baptize unto John's baptism anymore. We don't get you up here and baptize you because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is about to arrive. We baptize you to Jesus who has come and died. And you declare yourself a sinner in need of a savior. And that is the message that we completely identify with. Peter will tell them when he gets up and preaches in the book of Acts. Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you will receive the Holy Spirit. goes on to say, So then those who had received the word were baptized, and were added about 3,000 souls. Philip will get up and preach. When they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, men and women alike. When you said, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, I embrace this group of people, I wish to be identified with this group of people, I wish to stand up and say, what they believe is what I believe. That's when you get baptized. You completely identify. Paul, in the book of Romans, will go through this in some detail. He will ask the question in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course, the answer is no. How in the world shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, were buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. That's baptism. That's identification. We identify with the death of Christ. That's why we, that's why we baptize by immersion. It may not be the only form of baptism. I don't think that's worth burning people at the stake over. But it is the best representation of the reality of what's happening. You go under the water, and there's death under the water, right? We hold you down there long enough, you die. You're dead under the water. And then we bring you up like a resurrection into life. It represents the, the death and the dying of the old and the bringing up of life into the new. So we identify with the death of Christ. And so, what? Knowing this, that our old self is crucified with him, that this body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We've died to sin. We are now free to serve God. How does that... Baptism is the outward representation of that inward reality. That's why if you haven't been baptized, you should be. You should stand up and declare to everyone, this is what I believe. 
I believe that I am going to be crucified in Christ. And when I go under this water, my old man is going to die. And I'm going to resurrect. And I'm going to strive to live a resurrected life. You're not going to be perfect. It's not going to actually wash away your sin nature or anything else. But it is an outward declaration that I am going to strive from this moment forward. This is what I really believe. And I want everyone to know this is what I really believe. I'm going to declare it publicly. There's going to be no ambiguity. I'm going to draw this really bright line, the line of baptism, and I'm going to step over it. I'm going to go get baptized. That's why we do it. So Jesus, when he is baptized, he's baptized and he's authenticating John, John's message that the kingdom is at hand, John's message that the, that the Messiah, the Christ, is here among us, Jesus says, I, I completely identify with that message. In fact, I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach that I'm the Messiah, and the kingdom of heaven is in fact at hand, if you will just have national repentance, which of course we know they don't. And so they have this little discussion. You know, Jesus is like, just, let's just do this. It's, it's okay. Just baptize me. If, imagine if Jesus had gone along with that. Okay, John, all right, I'll, I'll baptize you. What would that have done? Everyone would have watched that and gone, what? what? Why is John getting baptized? And what message, what message is he getting baptized? What is the meaning of this? What exactly are we supposed to get from this act of Jesus baptizing John? I, it would have immediately created confusion and misunderstanding and because at this point, Jesus has no clear message. He hasn't said anything. Not yet. I mean, he's going to, but he hasn't yet. It's John that's got the message, and it's John who's going to introduce Jesus. So, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water, prays. It doesn't say exactly what he prays, but while he's praying, the next thing you know, the heavens open up. Now, just stop for a minute and imagine this. You are down here at the Jordan River. John's in the water. He's baptizing people. There's, there's, there's a crowd. There's lots of folks. John is preaching. You've got the Pharisees over here who, and the scribes who refuse to believe, and he's calling them snakes and vipers. And, and, but there's a whole pile of people who are believing, and he's talking to the tax collectors. He's talking to the common people. He's talking to the soldiers. He's telling everyone to live a better life and to live a righteous life. And here comes Jesus. And, and he baptizes this guy after a little discussion, which you can imagine kind of piques everybody's interest. What are they, what are they saying out there? He didn't talk to anybody else where he baptizes them. So, okay, this, everybody's interest is piqued. He baptizes Jesus. This guy comes up out of the water, starts praying, and the next thing you know, the heavens have opened up. The heavens have opened up. Now, the heavens open up on a variety of occasions, right? Ezekiel, the heavens open up to Ezekiel. And he, he looks up into the heavens. Stephen, remember when they're stoning Stephen? He says, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here the heavens open and there's every indication that everyone sees it. Certainly John does, but probably everybody. And as the heavens open, out comes this voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the very Spirit of God departs from this hole in the sky, leading up into heaven. And here comes the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It doesn't actually say it's a dove, but like a dove. Flittering, floating, brilliant. You, every, you can imagine you know how it is when something moves. If I, I'm not going to, but if I made a paper airplane and, and you know, flung it up, I guarantee you every eye in this place would watch that thing go. Once things start moving, you watch them. 
Well, the Spirit of God comes out of the heavens. Every eye is like, what? That, that's heaven. And what is that coming out of heaven? And where is it going? And we watch it go, and where does it end up? Jesus. The very Spirit of God descends out of heaven and lands not on John, Jesus. And the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now the next day, if you go to John, John says the next day when Jesus was coming to John, the Baptist, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of God. And if you're Jewish and you've been keeping the Passover every year and you know about the morning and evening sacrifice, which they do every day, twice on Sunday, well, Saturday actually, twice on the Sabbath, every day they sacrifice lambs. And suddenly John points to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who actually takes away the sin of the world. You really don't need any more of the gospel. You don't, you don't really need anybody to clarify anymore. That is as clear and black and white as it could possibly be that the Messiah has come. And he is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He is God's Messiah. Now, John says in that passage, this is the one on whose behalf I said, after me comes a man who is higher ranked than I because he exists before me. Now, if you've read the accounts at all, you know that Zacharias and Elizabeth, he, he sees the angel and he goes home and she ends up pregnant. Six months later, Mary ends up pregnant. So John is six months older than Jesus. Remember when Mary shows up and, and informs Elizabeth that she's pregnant? The babe leaps in her womb. And when it comes time for the birth, Mary decides that it's, it's time to go. John is born before Jesus, and yet he says, this is the one who I told you. He existed before me. That's a pretty amazing statement. I, I didn't recognize him, but in order that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it remained on him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remain upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I have seen him and bore witness, this is the Son of God. Now when John says I didn't recognize him, he doesn't mean that he didn't know Jesus was his his cousin. I mean, he knew that. But John's entire life has one purpose. John was brought into this world for the specific purpose of declaring the Messiah to be the Messiah. You get one shot at this. So, no matter how much you might think Jesus is that guy, no matter how certain you might be that, you know, you wait. You say, no, I was given a sign, and the sign is that the Spirit of God would come and descend on him like a dove, and will remain on him. And it's not until that happens. I don't care how much I know who Jesus is. I don't care what I know about his birth. All of that, I'm, I am not going to officially recognize him as the Messiah until the signs I was given come to pass. And guess what? 
They came to pass. This is another clear record given that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So everyone sees this event happen. Everyone watches the heavens open up. Everyone watches the Spirit of God descend like a dove. Just for the record, heaven is watching earth. This is what's going on. God is paying attention to what's going on down here. It's really important that we, that we ground ourselves in this, right? There's not some other world out there. There's not, don't get your theology from Star Trek, right? There's, there's not some other civilization running around out there that God is busy with. When Jesus entered into his creation and took on the form of his creation, he became a man. Nothing else. To this day, Jesus is in heaven in a human body. The one that resurrected from the dead back there in Palestine a couple of thousand years ago. That one. He's still in heaven in it. And will spend eternity in it. When God entered into his creation, he became a man. This is the plan of God. This is what God is doing. There's not someplace else. There's not some other thing. This is the thing. The glory of God is displayed in this creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. This world is the place that God is redeeming a group of people unto himself. The redemptive work of God, the work of Christ on the cross, the work of God and the call of people's lives, the the work of the gospel is the glory of God. We will spend eternity as the vessels of the grace of God. For eternity. You're not going to get to heaven and and have amnesia. You're not going to forget about this world. You're not going to get a thousand years into heaven and say, aren't you glad Jesus died for your sin? And go, sin? What in the world is sin? I don't remember ever sinning. Uh, Yeah, we will remember what sinners we are. I suspect with greater clarity than we remember it now. We tend to kind of forget our sin. Because for eternity, we are going to thank God for redeeming us from the wicked sinner we were. And if you forget what wicked sinner you were, you lose your ability to thank God. We will praise God for eternity that he was willing to redeem people like us. What in the world is he thinking? I suspect he scraped the bottom of the barrel. That's us. That's who we are. We're the worst of the worst. That's why God called us, to bring the greatest glory to himself. The death of Jesus was not plan B. This was the plan. From eternity past, Jesus was crucified, has been the son of God, right? So, how are we going to get this done? Here we have God. God is a holy, righteous, loving, but just God. God is without sin, and we are all sinners. How is a righteous, holy God who cannot endure sin? We cannot enter heaven like we are. Because just as we've ruined this place, we would ruin that place. Just if we have acted selfishly here, if we just entered heaven like we are, we'd selfishly ruin that place. So what does God do? How is God going to fix this? 
Adam sinned, led everyone into sin. We're all a bunch of sinners. The entire world is filled with self-righteous, proud, egotistical, often angry, jealous, envious. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on, right? You can't slander human nature. It's not possible. That, that's who we are. What is God going to do? How is God going to take people like this and actually get them into eternity righteous? How's God going to do that? And still, by the way, maintain his own righteousness. Well, God is going to go back to the beginning, and he's going to make right how that all went. Not a single descendant of, from Adam, right on down, has been able to defeat their sin nature. Nobody. You know, it's really interesting. Somebody, somebody asked me this week, they said, you know, I, uh, I want to do a lesson, and, and I know it's Father's Day, you know. So it'd be good if, could you give me the name in the Bible of a good father? I mean, not God. I mean, we all know God's our Heavenly Father. But any other father in the Bible who did a good job of, you know, raising their kids. While there's Adam, I, she, dad, dad didn't really go so well. Um, Firstborn son killed his own brother. Um, uh, there's Noah. Yeah, no, that didn't go so good either. Um, we got that. Yeah, no. Uh, there's Abraham. Uh, yeah, that uh, didn't go so good there with the whole Hagar and, and, and Ishmael. Isaac, except Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau. God clearly picked Jacob and Isaac clearly picked Esau. That, that, that didn't really go very well. Um, Jacob, he's got 12. Come on, he's got 12 boys, you know? Got, surely. Uh, yeah, no, not, not so much. Ten of them sold the 11th one into slavery. That's how good a parenting job he did. Um, you got Jephthah, Jephthah, who got out there and led that great victory. You might remember that guy, the name Jephthah. Remember, he was the guy that said, yeah, if I get the victory, whatever comes through my door when I get home, I'll sacrifice to God. Yeah, what a great dad he was. Yeah, particularly when his daughter came through the door. It's like, oh. Samuel, do you know why they ended up with King Saul? Because they said to Samuel, you're a great guy, but you're kids, man. Huh? We're here to tell you. It's, uh, they're just a disaster. They're like Eli, Eli. Samuel ended up as the priest because Eli's kids were such a disaster. You'd think Samuel, but it, mm, no. Saul? How'd Saul do with his kids? Now, Jonathan, good guy, but Saul was ready to kill him. What a dad. Yeah, got to be able to dodge those spears, you know, just kind of. Um, David? How'd David do? Yeah, not. Solomon? We don't want to get into Solomon, right? I, I mean, you just got to the whole Old Testament. You know what? Uh, no, actually, no. I can't really think of a single guy who was really a good dad in the Old Testament. Now, Solomon did write Proverbs, and he did write a lot of good advice because he's a very wise man. But, okay, name me, name me any of Solomon's kids. I mean, I can name you one of them. Rehoboam because he becomes king after Solomon dies. The guy had, a, what, 700 wives? 300 concubines? Which were kind of, they didn't really have a dowry. And Anyway, how many kids do you think that guy had? I mean, if you had one child off in every one of those, that's a thousand kids. Any, any idea what happened to any of them? Anybody got any idea where all those, all? No idea. Any of them? 
really kind of turn out and do something? Nope. You know what? If you had a good dad, you had a real treasure. If you like your dad, if, you got, if you're in good relations with your dad, uh, you're doing better than most people in the whole Old Testament, right? I mean, if by the grace of God, your dad was actually a godly man who did what he could to raise you in a godly fashion, that's a really unique guy. You can have the New Testament. It doesn't help. The New Testament doesn't help. Paul is Timothy, like my own son of the faith. What about your actual kids? No, 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 no record. So we now come to the genealogy of Jesus. Luke says when he began his ministry, that is Jesus, he was about 30 years of age. 30 years, by the way, is a good age. If, if I had to guess what age are we all in heaven, I, I you know, I guess 30, I it's as good an age as any. A lot of good stuff happens at 30. Uh, many people, many events in the Bible, people start when they're 30. Jesus is about 30. John, obviously, is as well about 30, the six months between them. Um, at 30, uh, you kind of, you know, at 20, sorry for you 20-year-olds and younger, you know, the world is a really black and white place. In your 20s, you make statements like, well, we need to just do this. I know, but it might, it might really upset a lot of people and, and be like, burn the place down. Yeah? Well, sometimes places just need to burn down. That's a good 20-year-old. Uh, the world is black and white, and they certainly know the difference. Just ask them. They'll tell you what's black and what's white. Uh, hopefully, by the time you're 30... You kind of look out there and you say, it's not that the world isn't black and white. There are certainly things that are black and things that are white. But the list and exactly which fits in, you know, it's, it's a little harder. I've been around long enough to figure out that I'm, I'm much more willing to die for those things which I believe are black and white, but I've, the, the list has shrunk some. It's not because I have enough humility now to realize that my ability to just completely discern what's black and white. Just ask me, I'll tell you. Um, actually... It's a little more complex than that. Life is pretty complicated. Sin really enters in and twists and turns things. And in humility, I'm not quite so quick to just burn the place down. We've got to see what we can do to build the place up. What a thought. And so by the time you get around to 30 or so, you're, oh, you're, you're working on that. Things are, things are going a little, a little better. But you still have, fortunately in your 30s, you still have some energy. You still have drive. You still, you still want to get stuff done. You've got a little more sense to kind of actually work on building things up instead of just tearing everything apart. So Luke records this genealogy. Now, the genealogy of, of Luke is different than the genealogy of Matthew. You might have noticed that. We could spend a long time talking about that. I'm not going to. Uh, there are, if you want, there are books out there that will, you can spend a lot of time studying. There are people who are very genealogically minded, right? Uh, Maybe there's someone in your family. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's just a phase of life. Maybe you just kind of get to a phase in life where you really want to chase down your genealogy. My genealogy, my dad did, in fact, he really went at it for a while. Uh, it appears that my grandfather was from Canada. And 
when he moved from Canada here to the States, he changed his name. Apparently, Murray is what we are now. And in Canada, we were the morons. Uh, I'm sorry, the morons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> apparently, Morin was a little too hard to pronounce, was the family story. As an adult, my view is that there were probably a few too many county mounties pronouncing the word Morin. And so we decided maybe we should just become Murrays and be done with it. Um, my dad traced us back to some kind of royalty in France. He, did, he went out, he did the graveyard, you know, the, the coral, the, the charcoal thing there, you know, to, to get it. To, he's got pictures and he had a computer program that they kept trying to update and charge us $80 every time they updated it. And so we kind of stalled out on that and we're, here we are. But he traced us way back, way, way back. Um, it's interesting, I, you know, there are people out there who know that their descendants came over on the Mayflower. There's, a, there's an actually a, a genealog- genealogical society, the, the Mayflower Society. There are others, you know, the Daughters of the Confederacy of your, that really does it for you. There, there are a variety of genealogical societies out there, and it's all kind of interesting, I guess. I don't, unless I'm a descendant of, like, Bill Gates, I don't. It doesn't really matter to me. And now, if you can show me that, you know, somebody back there would like to leave me a whole chunk of change. Now, that would be a whole other thing. But to just, in, in general, so the whole genealogical thing between Matthew and Luke, they serve different purposes. Matthew is written to the Jews. Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus is a direct descendant of Abraham and that he has the right to sit on the Davidic throne. Luke will include that, but Luke's goal is different. It's standard practice that you start with way back. You start at as far back as you can get, and then you move forward. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, work your way down to you, you, who you are. That's not what Luke does. Luke actually starts and says that Jesus was, and he says, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Well, that's immediately completely backwards. And he proceeds to go from Joseph, who is the son of, who is the son but that's the wrong direction. There's a reason, though, because Luke's goal is different than Matthew's. Luke's goal is to make it, which he in fact does, all the way back to Adam. Jesus is not just the son of David. He doesn't just sit on the Davidic throne. He's not just a descendant of Abraham. He is not just a descendant of Noah. He is actually a descendant of Adam. And Luke traces that genealogy all the way back to Adam. Now, I know you'd like me to read that genealogy this morning. I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. This genealogy serves this wonderful purpose of pointing out to us. Now, there are, there are some interesting names that we may want to take a look at. The fact is that he is the son of David, which is crucial. That is essential to his ministry. That is essential to what he is going to be doing in the world and the things that he's going to fulfill. He is, in fact, the son of Abraham. And it does matter Where we come from, God points that out. Genealogies do matter. God 
as a gracious redeemer, nonetheless says to the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 23.3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, nor any of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, which doesn't mean count to ten, it just basically means forever. Don't bring them into the assembly. They're not going to enter the assembly of the Lord. No descendant of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And if you don't know where the Ammonites and the Moabites came from, I'm not going to tell you this morning. You need to go read your Bible and find that out. I'll give you a hint, though. Think Lot. I'll do it for you right there. But the fact is that even in the midst of all of that, there is a very famous Moabite. Anybody know who? Come on, you can say it. Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. Not only is she a Moabite, she's in the direct line of Jesus. By the way, that's not in Luke's genealogy, that's in Matthew's. But nonetheless, she is there. Numbers 14.8, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. It matters who your grandparents were. If your grandfather was, I certainly hope he wasn't, but if he was a terrible person, a godless person, maybe a person who had an alcohol problem, a drunkenness problem, and maybe he beat your grandmother, maybe he beat his kids, maybe he was a very violent person, no one did anything about it. And maybe those kids grew up and said, I will never lay a hand on one of my kids. And maybe one of those people who said that are your parents. That affects your upbringing. The sins of your grandfather are visited on you. And it affects who you are. And it affects how you were brought up. And it affects how your parents brought you up. And it will affect, by the way, how you bring your kids up. So be righteous. Why? Because Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. So love God and keep his commandments and he'll bless your descendants to a thousand generations. So it is important where we come from. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. But Jesus is also the son of Adam. Jesus is, in fact, the second Adam. This is a really important theological concept. And once more, back to Paul and Romans, by the way, which is why I really like the book of Romans. Paul pulls a lot of theology and pours it into the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, Paul goes into this lengthy discussion about Jesus being the second Adam. And he says... Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness or in the offense of Adam. Who, by the way, Adam, is a type of him that was to come. The free gift, forgiveness, is not like the transgression. By the transgression of one Adam, everybody dies. Much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, abounds unto many. Adam lit the match that burned the world down. Jesus died the death that restored the burned world 
to wholeness. One, many. One act, many results. Adam's one act, disastrous results. Jesus' one act, amazing results. So they are very similar and completely opposite. Jesus is the second Adam, which, by the way, if you'd like to turn Genesis into poetry and want to actually think that maybe there wasn't really a literal Adam, I mean, come on. Really? Really. If there wasn't a literal Adam, then Jesus can't be the literal second Adam. And if Jesus isn't the literal second Adam, then his death doesn't actually redeem mankind. He can't fulfill the plan of God. 1 Corinthians 15, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep or have died. And since by a man came death, Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Praise God, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the second representative of all mankind. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to state in verse 45, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, is from the earth, and he's earthy. The second man is from heaven. As the earthly, so also those who are earthly. And as the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have bore the image of the earthly, so we will bear the image of the heavenly. Jesus is the second Adam, which is why our bodies will be resurrected. And when we see him, we will become him and be like him because we will see him as he is. For the first time, we will actually get it. This knowledge of who Jesus really is will come to us, and we will never be the same. We'll be like him. Not through a magic wand, through knowledge. We'll see Jesus as he is. Then we'll be like him. And lastly, the fourth thing, not only is he the son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, he's also the son of God. And that's who Jesus actually is, the Son of God. And he makes us children of God. And, back to Romans, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus. The whole inheritance. Okay. Back to Bill Gates, right? Good old Bill. I could do Warren Buffett, I guess. He's rich too. But back to Bill Gates. He got all this money. Wouldn't you just love to be a, wouldn't you love to be named a Bill Gates will? Can you imagine when he, when he kicks the bucket? I mean, all that money's got to go somewhere. Just ask Solomon, right? He wrote Ecclesiastes to talk about rich people who die and what happens to all their money. Wouldn't you love to, wouldn't you love to get into that? All right. He was a rich guy. Solomon was a rich guy. I would pick the richest guy you can possibly think of. Now, I want to ask you something. Imagine if God actually died. What kind of inheritance do you suppose God would leave? Well, I have news for you. God died. Jesus was God. And now that he's resurrected, guess what? That whole inheritance is his. And he's sharing it with us. 
We are now joint heirs with Jesus. This is why the Old Testament, Israel, they were married to God. But if your husband is dead, you are free to remarry. So God, in Jesus, died. God shed his blood for us. And then, death couldn't keep him. He got victory over death and resurrected. God, of course, came back from the dead. Even death itself cannot defeat God. God defeated death. It's like when the lepers, you touch the leper, you become unclean. Not Jesus. He touches the lepers, and they become clean. Death touches Jesus, and Jesus defeats death. That's the God we serve. That's who Jesus is. Love him with all your heart and serve him with all you got. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for coming down here and living that life we couldn't live. And then, because you were the word made flesh, you were, you were the Ten Commandments brought to life. You indeed loved your neighbor like you love yourself. And so you died for us. Oh, Lord, may we live like we believe it. May it transform us. May we never be the same as we think about your willing sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that you are the Son of God, the second Adam, the one who defeated sin when everyone else up to that point had been defeated by sin. Not you. You beat it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for dying for our sin. May we believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.